starting with today's scripture. The gospel readings for the next two Sundays dig into one of the overarching themes of Mark's gospel, which is the cost of discipleship. We can think of these next few weeks as mini-series on what it looks like to follow in this way with Jesus and what happens to the people who take it seriously. This way of Jesus is not about living happily ever after or about finding a comfortable, prosperous life. The way of Jesus is about living faithfully, finding hope, holding on to it for dear life, and letting the light that dwells in each of us shine on in the darkness, which will not overcome it. But our series begins with Jesus' homecoming. For a third time in Mark's story, Jesus is teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath, and for the third time in six chapters, Jesus encounters opposition. But this time, the opposition comes not from unclean spirits like the first time, or religious authorities like the second, but this time it's from his neighbors, his kinfolk, Likely, in a town the size of Nazareth, he was related to just about everybody. So it's his relatives. I imagine this crowd in the synagogue being full of people who knew Jesus, knew him very well, and he probably of them as well. There were probably those, if you've attended a church where you've gone back and encountered people who say, well, I remember you when you were this big. You were just little Jesus. Helping your dad in the carpenter shop. Oh my goodness, look how grown you've gotten. And it was probably as annoying to him as it is to all of us when that happens. There were probably people in the synagogue who were Jesus' best friends when they were kids. Playmates, neighbors, people that they would get in trouble together, always sticking together. But Jesus grew up and left town. And these friends stayed grew up, made a family, started a business. They were there and knew him as friend. And then, likely, in this synagogue, there was his family, the people who called him, literally, Brother Jesus, because that's what he was to them. We get the names of Jesus' brothers. We don't get the names of his sisters, so we can imagine their names. And they also stayed local, probably helping out when Jesus, the firstborn and oldest, left town to help run the family business and maybe even helped out as worship leaders on the Sabbath on occasion. So Jesus is home. And when he comes home, he runs right into the social expectations of what a young man from Nazareth should do with himself in the world. How he handled himself with the people who couldn't imagine him but anything as five or six years old. As well as with the people who maybe held a little bit of a grudge that he got out and made something of himself. How he managed himself is rich ground for studying how we too might handle ourselves 
when we find ourselves in the place of Jesus, returning to a home place, whether that's with people or a town where you grew up, or with anybody who has any history with you, and when we find ourselves in the place of the crowd, those who hear and process the stories and wisdom of those who've grown up among us went away and now have some things to share with us, some things to teach us based on their experiences out in the world. I've talked a bit in recent weeks about my first home church in Marion and my experiences growing up there. The folks who made up that congregation are some of the dearest people in the world to me. They've got stories after stories of Little Mary, or Mary Virginia, as they used to call me. Double name. And in more ways than I can count, they have blessed me and enriched me along my spiritual journey. It's in large part because of them that I am here. And so they have my gratitude and love. Always will. But even when they didn't know what to do with me, they stuck with me. The summer between my sophomore and junior year in college was one of these watershed moments for me in ministry because I was figuring out that I wasn't just called to ministry. I was a woman in North Carolina, the South, called to ministry. And I came from the Baptist stream. I was working that summer at a halfway house in Winston-Salem. And as part of my weekly responsibilities, I led a Bible study for the women. There were six of them that summer. And we decided we wanted to study the fierce women in Scripture. And in doing so, as we talked about these fierce women, I learned from them that prayer to and faith in a male God, a God where only male pronouns are used, was unhelpful at best and harmful at worst. So we decided, what else can we do? Where else in Scripture can we look for ways to describe God in a different way? And so as we studied these fierce women, we changed our prayer from praying to and talking about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to the God of Hagar and Leah and Rebekah. We prayed to and talked about the God of those lesser-known, underappreciated, unnamed women in the Old Testament. And then as we got into the New Testament, added on Mary Magdalene, Martha, the Marys, because there are many, and the other unnamed women who cared for Jesus and helped Paul and the named men get this movement of Jesus going in those early decades after Jesus' death. Through studying and talking about scripture and faith with women in recovery, seeking a new way to access belief, I started realizing the male God was everywhere in my own church upbringing too. And so, blessed be First Baptist Church Marion for their college student Sunday in late August, I saw my chance 
to bring some woman wisdom into the pulpit, into the service, with the opening prayer. I remember that Sunday, and I climbed up into the pulpit. There were two on either side, a divided chancel with stairs. I took a deep breath, and I said, let us pray. And I watched as the congregation dutifully bowed their heads, and I began my prayer, Dear Motherly Father. Now, maybe this is not revolutionary language to you. But about a decade ago in Marion, it absolutely was. I felt the air move. When heads and eyeballs popped open, snapped up to look at me, I did not make eye contact. There was no way. But I finished my prayer, kept it together, and then sat down. And the worship continued on. But after the service, you can imagine, about no less than a dozen people came up to me like, ready to talk to me about what they thought I heard. They just wanted to be sure, clarify for them, please, how did I begin my prayer? Some people thought I should have gotten my grandfather's permission and opinion. He was their beloved pastor from two, two or three decades previous and thought I should have cleared it with him. And then others thought I should have gotten the permission of the current senior male pastor's okay on my language, which he would have been fine with. They were clearly not fans of mother language for God. But then there were a few older women who sort of came up to me after most people had felt they had expressed their reaction to me came over and whispered to me that I liked your prayer. I've always thought of God as a grandmother or like my mama. So you keep on praying that way. I liked it. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time balancing out reactions that are different. I love this memory that I have because it keeps me grounded, but I remember the negative memories first. I remember the frustrated shock, the reaction that you should have cleared that with a grown-up. Before I remember the words to say, yes, you did right. What you said spoke to me, so keep on speaking like that. I don't know why that is. Why we have or I have the greater clarity about the negative things than on the positive affirmations. And I wonder if the human part of Jesus was like that, too. Now, I've never been told, then or at any time, by the folks at First Baptist Marian, that I offended them, or that I wasn't welcome in their homes or houses of worship. But many of my neighbors and spiritual kinfolk who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer certainly have. Not because they said motherly father, but just by coming in the door. And I can tell a good and true story just about a shocking reaction to an opening prayer. And I've never felt the welcome mat then being pulled out from under me as a consequence of being myself. That's a privilege of mine that I know. But I also know that's not everyone's experience. 
So what happens when the welcome mat is snatched away? When the people who loved you and whom you love suddenly take offense at the things you say or the works that you do or the life you lead, what do you do then? A combination of pastoral counseling through seminary and deep friendships and spiritual mentors that I'm going to listen to even if I don't like what they say initially have all helped me come to a sense of staying grounded with seven words when moments like that happen. These seven words take a stand, manage you, tend relationships. Take a stand, manage you, and tend relationships. This is what I see Jesus doing in this passage by his words and his actions. He models how these spiritual practices are intertwined. They must speak and talk with and work with each other for the disciple to take the way of Jesus seriously. So taking a stand, Jesus preaches the news that he came to heal our woundedness and to cast out the demons and unclean spirits that prevent us from seeing ourselves and one another with the eyes of faith and as the beloved children of God that we all are. <coughs> this is an unpopular message. It was then, and it can kind of get that way now if we think that all means all. And so Jesus had to manage himself when what he was saying became unpopular. Jesus didn't force healing or do a mind trick to convince his audience to believe what he was saying and think like him. He didn't force harmony or right relationship upon people who were unwilling to receive. He simply managed himself, did his work, and then he stepped back, incredulous that people who had known him the longest and best couldn't see beyond their limited view of him. Barbara Brown Taylor compares this to the experience of trying to light a match to a pile of wet sticks, in which Jesus holds the match until it burns out in his hand, while his family and friends just shake their heads a safe distance away. The light he brought home didn't catch for some reason. And so instead of working great wonders, Jesus had to walk away from his own hometown and go shine his light somewhere else. And yet I believe, because God never gives up on us, Jesus never gives up on us, that through everything, Jesus continued to tend those relationships in his hometown, but also wherever he went. He did not retaliate against the people. He didn't call down curses and plagues from heaven. He just kept doing the work that he was sent to do, healing those who were willing to receive a wholeness that at least in part appears to be connected to their faithfulness, 
to their willingness to let God be God in their lives. Like the woman with the hemorrhage last week and the 12-year-old girl, faith has an active part to play in wholeness. So Jesus models this, taking a stand, managing himself, and tending relationships to his disciples so that they have something real to hold on to, a road map, when they face rejections, unwillingness, and offense. Because they will. Each practice depends upon the other. Taking a stand that doesn't provoke a shouting match takes some self-management and an awareness of where I stop and you begin so that a relationship continues to be possible. When relationship is the goal, everything comes back to preserving its health and continuity. So if I take a stand and I'm aware of how that stand impacts those around me, I manage myself, I manage the message in order to preserve the relationship. I don't water it down. I become aware that our words and actions have power. And if the goal is to keep the relationship together, then everything else falls into place. So this journey, this way of Jesus that he modeled for his disciples as he sent them out two by two, as he models it for us, as we go out, as families, as individuals, as neighbors and friends, shows us this is not about winners and losers. It's relationship. It's about listening to the ones who grew up among us, letting them take their stands, and sharing in their wisdom, learning from their deeds of power, and accepting that God works through them even when it looks and sounds different than we've expected. It's about managing ourselves, our expectations and reactions to the stands being taken and whole truths being told. And above all, it's about cultivating relationships, treasuring and honoring the connections that keep us bound to one another in love and compassion. We are called to this work of compassionate companionship for a lifetime, of simply saying yes to God and yes to being willing to see God in another person. These practices don't guarantee happy endings, as our scripture next week will make clear. But nevertheless, Take a stand, manage you, tend relationships, and live out the good news, just like Jesus. Amen.